This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Silva veto stabat nulla violata securi. There was an ancient forest which no axe had ever touched, and in the heart of it, a cave, overgrown with branches and osiers, forming a low arch with its rock walls rich in bubbling springs. Hidden in this cave dwelt the serpent of Mars, a creature with a wonderful golden crest. Fire flashed from its eyes, its body was all puffed up with poison, and from its mouth set with a triple row of teeth, flickered a three-forked tongue. The Phoenician travellers entered the grove on their ill-omened errand and dipped their pitchers in the waters. At the sound, the dark, gleaming serpent put forth its head from the depths of the cave, hissing horribly. The blood drained from the men's limbs, the jugs fell from their grasp, and they shuddered with sudden dread. As for the snake, it coiled its scaly loops in writhing circles, then with a spring shot up in a huge arc, raising more than half its length into the insubstantial air, till it looked down upon the whole expanse of the forest. It was as huge as the serpent that twines between the two bears in the sky if its full length were seen uncoiled. Without a moment's pause, the monster seized upon the Phoenicians. While some of them were getting their weapons ready and some were preparing to flee, others were too terrified to do either. With its fangs, its constricting coils and tainted poisonous breath, it slew them all. This account of a very early type of dragon is from Ovid's Metamorphoses, written in Latin in 8 CE. It's the story of the legendary hero Cadmus, who is instructed by the oracle at Delphi to follow a wild cow and found a new city at the point where the cow stops. Unfortunately for Cadmus, this happens to be at a sacred spring, protected by a dragon. Cadmus ultimately kills the dragon, but not before his attendants stumble across the terrifying monster, and well, you just heard how that went. The story has lots of the features of a typical dragon tale. A huge, terrifying reptilian creature, foolishly disturbed by men, that rears up and attacks the intruders with its terrible fangs and poisonous breath, only to be overcome by the daring hero. Now in this case it's more snake-like than perhaps the typical dragon you may have in mind, which I will come back to, but it's still very recognisably a dragon. And this story is over 2,000 years old. Dragons, you may have noticed, are everywhere. Their popularity has risen and fallen over the centuries, but they are one of the very few mythological creatures that have become absolutely central to popular culture. Everyone knows what a dragon is, even if some of the features may vary. There are other important and well-known mythological creatures. Unicorns have certainly cornered the female under 10s market. You've got your classical creatures, often animal-human hybrids, from centaurs and satyrs to sirens and sphinxes. And then every culture across the world has its own unique mythological creatures. None, however, are as ubiquitous as dragons, which can be found in Europe, in the Americas, in classical and biblical traditions, in ancient Indian tales and across Asian mythology. In Western popular culture, dragons are bigger than ever. Recently, they formed a central part of eight years of Game of Thrones episodes, their portrayal and symbolism widely discussed and debated on and offline. And there are dragons too in some of the 
biggest cultural phenomenon of this century in everything from Harry Potter to Marvel films, from Ursula K. Le Guin's classic Earthsea novels, currently also being made into a TV series, to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien with Smaug the Dragon, most recently seen in Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy. So where do dragons come from? Why are they so common across cultures? And what do they mean for us today? Well, if there's one person to talk to about all of this, it is Professor Scott Bruce. The extract from Ovid you just heard is one of the many in the newly published Penguin Book of Dragons. So I'm Scott Bruce. I'm a professor of medieval history at Fordham University in the Bronx, New York. Uh, I'm a specialist in the history of medieval Christianity uh, with an interest particularly in religion and culture. I, um, my interest in dragons predated my becoming a historian. Uh, as a child, I was fascinated with stories about them. I got to see them on television through great films like The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and as a child I was a great player of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And so my, my imagination was steeped with, <laughs> with large reptilian monsters. But then when I started studying the Middle Ages, I came to it from a very different angle. I, I studied the cultural production of medieval monks. And as it turns out, much to my surprise and delight, monks were also interested in dragons. <laughs> and so I found um, my, my academic work and my, um, my childhood interests converged. Which is always the best way for your academic research to go, really. And so the Penguin Book of Dragons is a fantastic and incredibly wide-ranging anthology of dragon stories from antiquity right up to the 20th century. And it turns out that people have been interested in dragons for a very long time. One of the earliest dragon stories we have is about 3,500 years old in a Sanskrit hymn called the Rig Veda, a sacred Hindu text. This features a battle between a dragon, Vertra, who was a symbol of drought, and the storm deity Indra, who must defeat the dragon to release the waters and help humanity. Now, ancient dragons were maybe a bit more serpent-like than how we might imagine a dragon today. And we get our modern word from the Greek dracon, or serpent. So ancient dragons are almost always uh, monstrous serpents. They, they have no wings, they, have no, they do not breathe fire, they don't, they don't accord with the expectations of modern Western readers. They are venomous, they are wild animals uh, for the most part, they don't have speech, they don't have intelligence. What's established in these early tales and what will remain a crucial feature of dragons is that they present a fearsome enemy, something for a hero to bravely defeat in battle. In the classical world there are mythological dragons and they feature alongside gods and legendary heroes, but they are also real creatures, just not ones you are maybe likely to encounter. They're always just beyond the borders of the known. So, so they absolutely believed that they were real, but what's, and, and as, did, as did many medieval and early modern people, but the phenomenon is that they're never real and in your backyard. They're always real and somewhere else. <laughs> and that somewhere else is almost always at the border of what you consider to be the civilized world. So for the Romans, the civilized world was the extent of Roman influence. So dragons lived just beyond that. Um, and in fact, the defeat of dragons uh, often went hand in hand with the uh, you know, Roman military conquest. So stories, for instance, like there's a story told by um, uh, Silius Italicus, his poem, The Punica, which relates the stories of the Punic War between Rome uh, when Romans were fighting in North Africa. And one of, one of the stories there involves a Roman legion that encounters a dragon in the wilds of Africa, as it were, and they fight it and they defeat it. But what Silius Italicus is doing here is he's telling a story that's exciting to read, 
about Roman soldiers defeating a monster, but he's also, the, the dragon is also a metaphor for the wilds of a non-Roman place that are now coming under Roman control. In this way, dragons are like any number of monstrous others, and I've talked about plenty of them on various episodes of this podcast. They live at the borders of geography and the imagination. They embody our fear of the unknown and the elsewhere. And this is one of the things that we see in the long history of dragons, again from the Roman period all the way up to the present, is the gradual retreat of dragons with the advance of knowledge, with the advance of human understanding of the world. The dragons have to go underground. So dragons in the classical world do many things. They are worthy foes for a hero to defeat, strange and exotic monsters to be overcome in the expansion of the civilized world. They are real creatures out there to be discovered at a time of growing global trade and travel. With the rise of Christianity, dragons soon became an important part of Christian tales too. Serpents, of course, do not come out well in the Bible. Satan taking the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden and the book of Genesis and deceiving Adam and Eve and causing the fall of humankind uh, on the one side is, uh, you know, bookended on the other end of the Bible by the late first century book of Revelations where, um, you know, the massive seven-headed dragon is, um, you know, one of uh, Satan's instruments and has to be, you know, defeated by the archangels and, and cast into the pit of fire. So dragons really are synonymous with the devil and his minions uh, in the Bible, from the Hebrew scriptures all the way up to the Christian New Testament. So because the devil is so central to Christian teaching and myth-making in the Middle Ages, dragons pop up in all sorts of places, especially in stories about saints. The most well-known of these, perhaps, being St. George and the Dragon, which I'll come back to in a moment. But Christians at this time were also reading classical Roman texts, and they were reading Christian allegories into them, where dragons are representative of Satan. You may know Pliny the Elder, the Roman naturalist who wrote this huge, all-encompassing work called the Naturalis Historia, the Natural History, that kind of became the first or the basis for encyclopedias. And it was, in fact, his final work before he died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE. Pliny covers essentially everything in the natural history, and so, of course, that includes dragons. So one of the most fascinating parts of Pliny's history is that when he depicts dragons in India, he, he frames his narrative almost exclusively around the enmity between dragons and elephants. Africa produces elephants, but it is India that produces the largest, as well as the dragon, which is potentially at war with the elephant. The dragon has much difficulty in climbing up to so great a height, and therefore watching the road which bears the marks of the elephant's footsteps when going to feed, it darts down upon it from a lofty tree. The elephant knows that it's quite unable to struggle against the coils of the serpent, and so seeks for trees or rocks against which to rub itself. The dragon is on guard against this and tries to prevent it, first of all by confining the legs of the elephant with the coils of its tail, while the elephant, on the other hand, tries to disengage itself with its trunk. The dragon, however, thrusts its head into the elephant's nostrils and thus, at the same moment, stops its breath and wounds its most tender parts. When it's met unexpectedly, the dragon raises itself up, faces its opponent and flies more especially at the eyes. This is the reason why elephants are so often found blind and worn to a skeleton with hunger and misery. I love how matter-of-fact and incredibly detailed this entirely imagined encounter is. It's got a great King Kong versus Godzilla type feeling to it. So anyway, 
Medieval readers of Pliny were fully in agreement that dragons versus elephants was amazing, but it needed a Christian angle. When medieval readers read this, their worldview was so steep with the idea that dragons were allegorical for the devil that in their minds, the elephants of Pliny's narratives became human souls. So that battle, that massive combat between elephants and dragons was really an allegory for the battle for the human soul that took place as the devil tried to corrupt people. And some of the most wonderful illuminations that we have of dragons in the Middle Ages show these kind of sinuous reptilian creatures wrapping around and fighting elephants. Um, Medieval Christians were really taken with this image. And you can't blame them. Dragons were also a major part of the stories of saints. This mainly, although not entirely, took the form of evil dragons being defeated by saintly, well, saints. The story of St. George and the Dragon was hugely popular in this period. It's mainly seen now as a story connected to England, George is the country's patron saint, the English flag is St. George's cross, and so on. But there are actually lots of variations on the story in other countries and time periods and lots of other heroes. But anyway, the story goes that there's a pagan kingdom, it's plagued by a dragon, and the people are forced to draw lots for someone to be sacrificed to the dragon to be eaten. When the king's daughter draws the lot, she insists on going and is waiting for her terrible fate. When St. George arrives, battles the dragon, rescues the girl, and everybody converts to Christianity. This story is a major part of where the damsels in distress narrative gets associated with dragons as well. But women don't always play the role of victim or prize for the hero. In the Christian tradition, we have two saints, two saintly women who encounter dragons. One of them is St. Martha. Her story is particularly strange because she is devoured by a dragon while in prison and she prays while she's in its stomach and bursts out of the dragon. The dragon explodes um, and uh, due to the power of her prayer, she then becomes the patron saint of childbirth. Um, I don't want to contemplate that too long. Yeah. But the uh, <laughs> but anyway, she presents a different model. She slays the dragon from within through prayer. And then there's other female saints who tames a dragon, wraps her kind of belt around its neck, and leads it away. And then and then other people kill it for her. Um, so so women are largely because because so much about the dragon and fighting the dragon all has to do with male martial attributes, women have largely been written out of the story until some wonderfully subversive writers at the end of the 19th century add them in again. And now you can't think of dragons without thinking of any of the the women of fantasy literature who control them or defeat them. Uh, Daenerys Targaryen, I think, being the best example. But she would have been largely unrecognizable to pre-modern readers. But what about dragons as most Westerners imagine them? I mean, personally, when I think of a dragon, there are a few key features. It has to be huge and terrifying, fine. It most likely lives in a cave somewhere, but it also has to fly and it has to breathe fire. Where do these dragons come from? Because they're not quite what we've seen in the various traditions so far. We'll get to the bottom of that and more in just a minute. First, I wanted to take a quick break to catch you up on a few things. The first is to say thank you for bearing with me. If you are a regular listener, the last season break was much longer than intended. For a whole variety of reasons I'm not going to go into, the world continues to be an unpredictable place. But the show is getting a bit of an overhaul, which I'm really excited about. You may have noticed the great new artwork. The website is going to be updated soon. There's going to be a whole new mini-series of bonus material coming very soon. So watch this space. And if you are one of the many kind and generous supporters of this show, or if you generously gave your time last year to filling out the listener survey, then you have helped in all of this. I have more production support for the show now and some more resources to put into things like marketing. 
So go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can become a member of Headstuff Plus. You're supporting the show. You're supporting all the shows on an amazing podcast network. And you're getting lots and lots of bonus material, upcoming episodes, lots more. Headstuffpodcast.com is also where you can find out about all the other shows on the network, including the wonderful and hilarious Double Love, in which Anna and Karen go through the entire 1980s Sweet Valley High book series, one book at a time. It's great. It's very funny. Have a listen. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written or ghostwritten. If you ever read about Elizabeth and Jessica, the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. Of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnapping, stolen boyfriends and school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Back to the dragons, the fire-breathing dragons. Our idea of the traditional winged, large, fire-breathing dragon comes out of northern European mythology um, and is best characterized by the dragon in the Beowulf poem, which was probably composed around 700 CE and only survives in one manuscript from about the year 1000. Um, and here we have a dragon that fits, you know, this is, this, is, this is our dragon. This is the dragon that Western readers recognize. It doesn't do any speaking, but it has a, you know, a, a fight with a, with a hero, Beowulf, um, which closes the poem and leads to Beowulf's death. I'm sorry to spoil it for anyone that hasn't heard the poem. Um, and there's large extracts from this in the Penguin Book of Dragons. But there, the dragon has, is a very, very potent cultural symbol in that society of Northern Europe in the early Middle Ages, Another key aspect of this story, something that's common in so much contemporary dragon mythology, is that the dragon hoards gold, and this is crucial. Uh, one of the things that held that warrior society together was the, um, the capture of plunder um, through combat and war, and then the redistribution of that plunder to the followers of the war leader. So wealth was particularly important in that society. Uh, movable wealth like gold and, and gems and precious items because it, it allowed you to create the bonds that held your war band together. The dragon in that story is monstrous not just because he's a large fire-breathing reptile but because he hoards wealth. He holds all this wealth in his lair. Um, he's only awoken when somebody steals something from the lair but he's monstrous because he takes away that, that precious commodity that allows the society to create cohesion. And so dragons are always loaded with some kind of cultural symbolism in this regard. So this Northern European tradition is a very important part of our contemporary conception of the dragon and a huge influence on dragons in fantasy literature. But if you ask your average kid about dragons these days, they may not only mention fire-breathing dragons. They can fly with their wings, flapping their wings, and dragons on their feet, instead of toes, they have claws. Oh, that's true. The red dragons do out fire, um, and they talk while on those um, eyes. Oh, yeah. And the yellow one does um, yellow powers. Some dragons are colourful. Some dragons are rainbow dragons. 
So this is my three and a half year old daughter. And clearly how she thinks about dragons is influenced by stories and TV shows and films and everything else. But it's not just the stories that have come from a sort of a very typical Western tradition. There's lots of other influences at play here. And of course, if you think of a dragon, you may not be thinking of the type of one I am at all. Perhaps you're thinking of a long, wingless, serpentine Chinese dragon paraded at Lunar New Year Festival, for example. Dragons are a huge part of Asian mythology, art, culture and more, but they're utterly different to the Western dragon. They're typically associated with water rather than fire, and they don't usually fight mythological heroes. Crucially, also, they can speak. And, and so just the fact that they have speech makes them much more textured, nuanced, multidimensional characters. Because with speech comes empathy. Um, they don't just utter threats or anything like that. They, they actually articulate and they want to talk to human beings. And often they want to talk to human beings because they need the help of human beings. And this to me was so fascinating after reading so many texts about warriors and bravery, you know, warriors who are brave and they're skilled in arms and whatnot, and then they go and fight dragons. The dragons in the end become kind of paper tigers. You know the dragon is going to be defeated. You know how the story is going to go. It was so refreshing for me to find stories in which dragons actually looked to heroes to help them escape or overcome even worse monsters. <laughs> and and therefore, the, the heroism of these heroes didn't just have to do with their ability to fight and slay monsters. It had to do with their empathy and their generosity, that they would recognize dragons as being intelligent, articulate creatures that needed their help. Dragons also often change shape and they can take human form. They live in palaces. They enjoy the accoutrements of aristocratic culture. So they eat well. They dine at big banquet halls. They have servants, often fish and other sea creatures that come and serve them. In an anonymous story from 17th century Japan, the hero Fujiwara Hidesato visits the dragon king of the lake. Hidesato was conducted to the palace of the dragon king under the bridge. Strange to say, as he followed his host downward, the waters parted to let them pass, and his clothes did not even feel damp as he passed through the flood. Never had Hidesato seen anything so beautiful as this palace built of white marble beneath the lake. He'd often heard of the Sea King's Palace at the bottom of the sea, where all the servants and retainers were saltwater fishes. But here was a magnificent building in the heart of Lake Biwa. And so there's just much more affinity between human beings and dragons in that culture. And some of the stories bear this out and make that makes them more interesting. There's even love. Uh, there's Because they can take human form, human beings and dragons can fall in love and they can... Um, they, and there you get many different elements of stories there that, you know, kind of the, the conflicts that arise when a, a mortal human falls in love with a kind of not mortal dragon and, um, and the problems that ensue. So the stories become much more rich and complicated and, and to me, frankly, much more interesting. It's hard to trace how much influence Western and Eastern dragons may have had on each other throughout the centuries. However this may have played out, though, what certainly happened to dragons in the West, something that completely changed how they were viewed, is that they began to speak. Just as with Asian dragons, giving a dragon a voice allows for characterization and empathy and a whole array of new plots and stories. One of the reasons that this happened was that dragons were simply becoming boring. By the 18th and 19th centuries, the dragon story was extremely predictable. 
Fearsome dragon, princess in danger, hero arrives, slays dragon. It had been done so many times. And so a change came about in children's literature in particular, where authors began to domesticate the dragon and to see the story from the dragon's point of view. And again, the story of St. George pops up. What's fascinating is that right at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, um, authors of children's literature began to subvert the paradigm. And we see this, there's two stories that, that conclude the Penguin Book of Dragons, both of which I love. The first is by the author who would later go on to write the children's classic, The Wind in the Willows. One is Kenneth Graham's The Reluctant Dragon, which was published in 1898, in which, which is set in the medieval period, in which um, a, a dragon who's living in the countryside befriends a small boy. And as it turns out, this dragon is a complete, um, he's, not, he's not vicious, he's not antagonistic, he simply wants to write poetry and have intelligent conversation. And, um, and the boy loves the dragon, but he's, but he's very afraid because when the local people find out about him, they're going to summon St. George to slay him. And, and this is indeed what happens, except that the boy and the dragon are able to win over St. George, convince him that the dragon is not a threat. They stage a mock battle, and the dragon pretends to be slain so that everybody will leave him alone. Then there's Edith Nesbitt, the very influential early 20th century English children's author. She wrote Five Children and It, The Railway Children, and dozens of other children's stories. So her story, The Last of the Dragons, was published posthumously in 1925. In which a young princess who is supposed to go and, and be the victim of a dragon and then be rescued by a young prince, says, I'm having none of this. Like, this is, this is ridiculous. The whole tradition is nonsense. And why is this guy even rescuing me when I'm a better sword fighter than he is anyway? So this really plucky young woman, and she goes and, and, um, and convinces the dragon through kindness that, they, that we have to do away with this tradition. The dragon very famously says in the story, your kindness quite undragons me. <laughs> and he agrees to be her pet, allows her to strap seats on his back, and he flies her friends all over the place, and he becomes eventually the first airplane, as it were. So it's this wonderful subversion of a young woman taking a feminist stance, saying, I'm not going to be victimized anymore, and in fact, we don't need these silly conflicts, and let's all be friends. Um, and there we have the roots. This domestication of the dragon is, is in my mind, so much... It paves the way for the stories we have about cooperation between humans and dragons that are just so popular in, um, in modern literature. And from this point onwards, the dragon becomes a mainstay of children's literature. Zog, by the wonderful author-illustrator combination of Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler, owes a huge amount to Nesbitt's story and is a standout example of any number of similar children's dragon stories. How to Train Your Dragon is a favourite of my kids and many others. It's set in a world in which dragons are feared and despised until a child befriends one and realises they are completely misunderstood. And, of course, it would be remiss of me not to mention Tolkien, who did more than anyone really to spread the image of the Northern European Beowulf-type dragon. Smog um, in The Hobbit is, is, is almost an exact carbon copy of Beowulf's dragon, with the exception of the fact that he speaks. That is, that's a novelty that Tolkien added to the tradition. But nonetheless, every aspect of Tolkien's dragon in The Hobbit is, is, is it's a carbon copy of the Beowulf dragon. But of course, Tolkien being a scholar of old English literature knew this dragon very, very well and very purposefully appropriated its attributes. So by the late 20th and into the 21st century, dragons have emerged as a staple of popular culture, in fiction and film and TV and so on, but also in gaming, from Dungeons and Dragons to World of Warcraft. Dragons can be cute and cuddly, or fearsome, monstrous others. 
They can be domesticated and harmless, or harnessed for their sheer power and destructive ability. They can be a terrifying, voiceless enemy for the hero to defeat, but more often these days they have agency and a voice. They can have desires and fears just like we do. They're adaptable and can be endowed with cultural meaning, and as storytellers we can draw on this long, diverse and fascinating history, going back thousands of years. So that's it for another episode of Words to That Effect and the beginning of a brand new season. Thank you so much for sticking around if you're a regular listener. I'm so excited to get this new season going and to be putting out regular episodes again. Lots of people to thank on this one. First and foremost, Professor Scott Bruce. The Penguin Book of Dragons is fantastic. It's available as an ebook now everywhere and it's in print in the US with the print version coming soon in Europe and elsewhere. And I'll put links to the book and to Professor Bruce and everything else on the website. That website is wttepodcast.com, wttepodcast.com. And that's where you can find everything. There's full transcripts, there are links, all the episodes, everything you would ever need to know about the show. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. And the show is on Instagram and Facebook at Words to That Effect. Thanks to James for being the brilliant voice of Ovid you heard at the beginning of the episode. Thanks to Margot for representing the under four's views on dragons. Words to that effect is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and it is recorded here in the podcast studios in Dublin. Production assistance from Marissa Brown, fabulous new artwork by Matt Mann. And for more on all things Headstuff and to support the show, pop on over to headstuffpodcast.com. I would really appreciate it. Thanks. I'll see you next time. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.